Well, I've said to you before uh, that I believe that one of the uh, best uh, summaries of the entirety of Scripture uh, in just a sentence uh, is the phrase, life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. Now, saying that doesn't mean that a good summary is sufficient for you to know and understand Scripture. Like, like you can't just say uh, the Bible, oh yeah, I, I know what that's about. It's a, it's a bunch of stories that kind of make the point that life is hard, but God is good. I mean, a summary, even a good summary, cannot generate the kind of understanding that leads to wise living. More importantly, a shallow familiarity with Scripture cannot help you develop an intimate relationship with God. You won't know Him deeply if you just have a summary and you never push beyond that. And if we don't know God, then we will not understand what life is truly about. We won't know our purpose. We won't know the true freedom that comes from, from being redeemed, from being liberated from our, our sin as slaves and being set free. We'll be ill-equipped to make sense of life, detached from the ability uh, to find meaning uh, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And left to ourselves, we'll spend our fleeting days uh, chasing after an idyllic fantasy uh, which eventually slips from our fingertips with the short passage of time. Rather, when I say that life is hard but God is good, what I mean is that as you search the pages of Scripture, you are going to find that hopeful refrain being echoed over and over again. That set against the backdrop of this world's broken reality, the story of, of sin and death that is ours, is this invitation to know another greater story that makes our earthly story make sense. The greater story, of course, is that there is a creator God, a God who has made all things, a God who is sovereign over this world's sordid, sin-stained story, a redeemer God who has made himself known that he might rescue or redeem his creation and then restore it under his rightful rule and reign. If you're discovering in your time in God's Word, if you're discovering that truth in the pages of Scripture, it will lead you to an intimate personal relationship with God. It will equip you with an understanding to know that you are no exception to this reality. Life is hard, but God is good. And if you discover that in the pages of Scripture, then you will more readily recognize that recurring theme in your own life. That my life is going to be marked by hardness, but I am continually finding God's goodness to help me navigate life's hardship. And this is a very hopeful thing, because every single person here, every person who has ever been born, is going to contend with this reality. Life is hard, and when you get to the end of it, it will deprive you of your last breath until at last you are dead. In fact, I would go so far as to say uh, that apart from facing the hardness of life, we will never come to truly acknowledge and appreciate and appropriate the goodness of God's sovereignty over us. The psalmist expresses this ideal well when he writes these words, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and as we sang earlier, we fly away. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Because even though life is hard, our God is good. For the servant of God, for the son or daughter adopted into God's family by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is this hope. But not everyone is a servant of God. And that helps to explain how different people respond differently. Some find repentance and faith and help and hope, and others remain in rebellion against this unchangeable, this immutable truth that life is hard. And because you are a sinner, it's only going to get worse until it's over. You've seen this play out around you. Two different people can go through almost identical circumstances. One will come out the other side better, and the other will come out bitter. The difference is God. It's God who enables us to lift our eyes beyond the present moment and see something greater than simply what we are experiencing in the moment. But if God is absent, then we are apt to feel as though if we believe in God, He's against us and He's mad at us and He's crushing us and we just become bitter. Well, we see this dichotomy in the passage before us today in Mark's gospel, a clash between the hardness of life and the greater goodness of God. If you haven't done so yet, open your Bible to Mark chapter 6. This story reads like a modern-day soap opera or a Greek tragedy. Um, In it, we see an isolated conflict that reveals a much larger conflict That's taking place in every single one of our lives, in every situation and every location and every circumstance. Every person who has ever lived has lived at the epicenter of this conflict. Now, I told you last week, Mark is recording uh, the remembrances of Peter, uh, and that explains why sometimes it feels a little disjointed. Um, So immediately following Jesus' rejection in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus demonstrates his resolve to his mission by sending out the 12 uh, disciples who've now become apostles. And then before they can even return, uh, which actually occurs in verse 30, Mark inserts the account of John the baptizer's death. The last we heard of John was way back in chapter 1, where we are briefly told from Peter's recollection that Jesus didn't embark upon his ministry. He didn't launch his ministry until John was arrested. Uh, Verse uh, 13 says, after John was arrested. With that brief note, Peter shifts Mark's focus in chapter 1 exclusively to Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned last week, there are only two passages in the entirety of the Gospel of Mark that focus on someone other than Jesus Christ. Both of them are about John, and both of them foreshadow Jesus. John was the forerunner to Jesus in ministry, and he will be the forerunner to Jesus in death. And it's as though in chapter 6, as Peter is recounting the story to Mark, uh, he uh, has this new thought in the midst of talking about how Nazareth had rejected Jesus, and when sending them out, Jesus said, hey, I'm just warning you right now. You're going to face rejection. People are going to reject you. And all of a sudden, it's like a light goes on in Peter's head. And he says, and if I had just seen it at the time, uh, I didn't realize it then. But not only was there going to be rejection, there was actually going to be death for those who followed Messiah. 
And thus, he recounts for Mark the end of John. Mark chapter 6, we'll start in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the others, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. So Jesus uh, has been uh, teaching powerfully and, and demonstrating uh, the, the, the mark of his Messiahship by performing miracles, healing, and casting out demons. And now he's uh, multiplied that 12 times by sending the disciples to do the very same thing. And the result of this is that word continues to spread, even reaching uh, the capital city uh, in uh, Galilee. And it's there that the ruler of, Gal- of the area of Galilee hears about Jesus. And what Mark tells us here is that as the word has been spreading about Jesus, people are, are kind of uh, trying to come up with an understanding, and an idea, a notion about who Jesus is. And he says there are three popular thoughts. John uh, is, has been raised back to life. And the reason why Jesus uh, is uh, able to do all these powerful things is because he's come back from the grave. Others have said, no, this is, this is Elijah. Uh, the, the Old Testament tells us that Elijah must come before uh, the Messiah comes. And of course, Jesus uh, tells listeners that uh, if, if they understand, if they will, John was Elijah, and now he has come. Others have said, no, he's, he's just a prophet like one of the old prophets. The, the point of the popular notions being formed about Jesus is that nobody actually sees him for who he is. No one understands that this is God incarnate, that he's come to redeem us, he's come to save us. Uh, They're looking for something other than a God who would humble himself in that way. But when the news about Jesus reaches Herod's ears, he has his own interpretation. He is convinced that this is John who's come back from the grave after Herod had beheaded him. Uh, Herod's reaction is a guilt-ridden, superstitious, uh, pagan response to what he believed was John having been raised from the dead to come back and to haunt him uh, for what he had done. Chapter uh, 6, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. John's message was, as the forerunner, was one of repentance, of turning from your sin and seeking to obey God's law as we await the coming of Messiah. And John's message was for everyone, including Herod. He pulled no punches. There, uh, when Jesus uh, uh, heaps accolades on John, uh, he's saying that John was unlike other people. He wasn't afraid uh, to stand toe-to-toe with the world's uh, elite and to tell them the truth about their sin. And this is what John had done, and it had gotten him in trouble. John was courageous to call Herod to repent for divorcing his wife and then committing adultery and incest with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, at this point, it might be helpful in our study of Scripture for us to understand just a little bit about the dark and sordid family tree of Herod's family. 
So I've given you a chart to show you that Herod the Great is actually the patriarch of the family. Herod the Great is the Herod that we see at the beginning of Jesus' life on earth. He's the one who orders children to be, uh, male children to be killed in Bethlehem. He is the only person who, uh, his, whose kingdom is, actually uh, expands over the nation of Israel as we know it. Herod the Great had four sons. They are actually Herod Aristobulus, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. Everybody carries the name Herod, which makes it very difficult to follow. Then Aristobulus has a son, Herod Agrippa I, and a daughter, Herodias. Even the girls are in on sharing the family name. So Philip, the son of Herod the Great, marries his niece, Herodias. Weird, right? Well, it gets weirder. Herod Antipas has a thing for Herodias. So he divorces his wife, he convinces Herodias to divorce his brother Philip, and then he marries Herodias. This is why John is saying, it's not lawful for you, it's against Leviticus, it's against God's law for you to have your brother's wife, and worse than that, to commit incest by marrying your niece. This is uh, Herod the Great and his descendants. And Herod Antipas uh, was a, a wannabe like his father. He would even execute his sons. It was said that it was better to be Herod's dog than to be his child. Uh, this is the family uh, who John has uh, fallen into control. And yet, Scripture says that Herod Antipas feared John, but he was fascinated by him. Herod Antipas, uh, the Bible says, knew that John was a righteous man. And though verse 20 says that he was perplexed by John's words, he was nevertheless intrigued to hear him. I would suggest that this is perhaps the first time Herod Antipas had ever met a real man. He had been used to people telling him what he wanted to hear. Are you like Herod in that way? Do you have any real men in your life who will tell you the truth? Any real women who will run the risk of offending you? This was John's ministry. And though he was perplexed, still Herod wanted to keep John around. Not so Herodias. Herodias, Herod Antipas's wife, was outraged by John. She was filled with vitriol and vindictiveness. She wanted John dead. So for a time, Herod arrested John and put him in prison. But he did so to protect John against his wife Herodias. He felt as though, uh, as the ruler of Galilee, he had everything well in hand. That he could shuffle the chess pieces on the board and remain in control. But Herod was about to find out our truth that life is hard. Chapter 6, verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. This was a who's who kind of a party. Everyone was there. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to give her whatever she asked. Now we're to understand this isn't a, this isn't a Jewish party, okay? This is a party in the making of Rome, okay? So, so this was about gluttony and excess and drunkenness and a, kind of an orgy-like environment. It was drunken, tawdry affair. All the power players in the area of Galilee and in the reach of Herod Antipas are there during, and during this party, after much alcohol has been consumed, after they've gorged themselves on food, 
Herod's daughter-in-law comes in to dance. Josephus uh, tells us that her name is Salome. She is actually the daughter of Philip, the original husband, and Herodias. Now, what you need to understand that this is no mere ballet recital, okay? That's not what happens. This is, you need to think more in, 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 in the realm of a strip club. Uh, Salome's dance was provocative and sexualized, and uh, she was about the age of marriage. She uh, is referred to as a little girl, just like Jesus referred to the little girl, uh, Jairus' daughter, when he raised her. So though she was roughly at the age of marriage in our economy, uh, she would be just a child. And yet, uh, she satisfied, she pleased Herod with her performance. Now, it's hard to imagine that a father would willingly uh, allow his daughter-in-law uh, to perform in such a way to debase herself in front of a bunch of intoxicated, glaring men. But scriptures say that Herod was pleased, as was his guest. And that word pleased is a euphemism for arousal. There, there was clear intent here, and Herod, in a drunken state, was taken by it. So taken by it, that with his pride and self-importance, he allowed his mouth to run ahead of his senses. He offered to her half of his kingdom. Here's a guy who's so arrogant and so self-assured, he doesn't need to repent to God. Uh, there are no repercussions uh, for his sin for someone like him. He's above the, the realities of the hardness of this life, and that's when he succumbs to the temptation to big time in front of the elite. The scriptures say that pride goes before a fall. And so what's interesting for you to know about Herod Antipas, Mark kind of twists the knife, if you will, as he begins this story. Herod Antipas wasn't actually a king. He didn't bear the name that his father had borne. His official title given to him by Rome was Tetrarch. Tetrarch literally means a ruler of the fourth part. So Herod's empire, Herod the Great, his empire was taken, broken up into four, and each of his sons were made a governor. Not a king, a governor. In fact, uh, after their father Herod the Great, none of the sons will ever actually be kings. Each one of them will only be governors in the area that was assigned to them by Rome. History is going to show that Herod Antipas, the Herod in our story, is actually going to be banished to Gaul where he will die in disgrace because he asked uh, Rome to make him a king. And this was Rome's response. He is not a king. And as being not a king, he had no right to make the offer he made. So being uh, fueled by alcohol and testosterone, he offers something that he's not even authorized to offer. It's an empty offer. It's just braggadocia. I can, pay, I can pick up the tab for this. I can give you half of my kingdom. Just say whatever it is that you want. But the truth is, Caesar wouldn't have allowed Herod Antipas to give an inch of the land over which he was a governor. It was just pridefulness, undone by his own sin, because he wouldn't repent of his sin, thinking he could maintain control, he allowed himself to be in a position where suddenly the carpet is jerked out from underneath him and his kingdom, as it were, is undone. Verse 24, she went out and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Herod's misstep was Herodias's opportunity. She was as political and cunning as her husband was. And as soon as the question 
was asked, she knew what she would answer. The head of John the Baptist. And she came immediately back to Herod Antipas with haste and said, I want you to give me at once on the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. From delight to despair, from parting to pitiful, he realized in his drunken stupor that he had gotten himself into trouble. Yet because of his arrogance, because of his pride, he could not break his oath, and his guest did not want, <clears throat> did not want to, in front of his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent to an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. What a disgusting scene. Can you imagine it? Platters that had previously been serving all kinds of food for everyone to gorge themselves on. And suddenly, there's the bloody head of John. Sex, power, pride, all fueled by arrogance and alcohol, and it ends with murder. Herod, because he's in front of his military men, doesn't want to withdraw. He wants to prove uh, that his pride, he's good for it. In our day, we use the acronym EGO to talk about edging God out. This is what happens when we follow our pride. This is what happens when we're building our own little kingdom as though we can somehow keep God out. Eventually, the kingdom of God comes crashing into every kingdom in this world. Now, why is John being executed? Is it because of the whim of a wannabe king? Is it because of the shrewd conniving of his vindictive wife? No. It is because John was faithful to the proclamation of that message of repentance, no matter whom it offended. John had placed his confidence in the one true and living God uh, who this world tries to ignore, and he was willing to be and do what God had called him to be and do without regard for the consequences. He knew that God was sovereign over his circumstances. He knew that life is hard, but God is good. He knew what Peter would later write in his first letter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God had a plan for John's life. And in this story, even if it's hard for us to see it, John wasn't the loser. I mean, he's the guy who lost his head, but, but everyone else in the story is, is on the, the losing end of the story, not, not John. Uh, John was, uh, was given as the, the final Old Testament prophet to bear witness to the coming of Messiah and the rejection of the world against him. And, and Mark has in view here uh, more than just John. He looks beyond John to see what Jesus would do. He looks beyond Jesus to see what would suffer, what the, the suffering of the apostles and, and every other person who has ever been martyred in the history of the church for their faith in Christ. He, he looks to you and I and the suffering that we might endure because we stand for Jesus Christ. So similarly, Stephen, the first Christ follower to be martyred for his faith in Christ, said just prior to being stoned, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This was Herod's problem. John had preached a message of repentance to him, but Herod thought he could put it off. 
He deferred, he delayed, and it became too late. Stephen continued, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And Stephen's words weren't just for the listeners on the ground that day. Stephen's words were for you and I. Our sin, our pridefulness, our arrogance put Jesus on the cross. We are no different from Herod apart from uh, the redemptive work of Christ uh, to redeem us and to renew us. Was it fair that John should lose his head? Uh, was it fair that, uh, that such a tragedy would befall him? And it, it, the only highlight, the only uh, soft note in the entirety of the story comes in verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. But everything else before that was a reckless injustice because of one man's foolish pride. It wasn't fair for him to die because of the capricious petulance of a wicked woman and a spineless, godless ruler. Did he deserve something better in this life? Yes, I think we would all say that. But life is hard. And in its hardness, life is going to hit every single one of us. And it is better to know that you are right with God than it is to be right with men, even if it costs you your head. In fact, Jesus said of John for this very reason, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. In this clash of personalities with the dysfunction and, and all of that in Herod's family, it's, it's John who lived a life in view of the greater goodness of God with a perspective on eternity. Peter, whose uh, memories of Jesus' life Mark is recording for us, would later record uh, in his own life, uh, uh, he would later die for his faith in Jesus in his own life, and he wrote these words in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This world would choose the seemingly enviable position and status of Herod nine times out of ten over John. But history has proven that that is folly. An old adage which has fallen out of use in our secular agnostic age as a proverb from this story, it has been stated, this is why we name our sons John and our dogs Herod. Because in the long run, in the final analysis, it is better to be right with God than it is to be right with man. You see, what we have here in this story is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and his Christ colliding with the darkness of this world's earthly kingdoms. And that collision takes place on the body of John the Baptist. Now, think with me for a second. Why are these kinds of stories in the Bible? What is it meant for in our lives? Scripture tells us that the Word of God is written so that every Christ follower would be trained and equipped for every good work. This passage is not here just to give us a bit of history on a character who lived long, long ago. 
it's, it's given to equip us to be what God has called us to be, to do what God has actually called us to do, to learn with confidence and hope that life is hard. We're going to be honest with it because God is honest with us. Life is hard, but God is good. There's a practical gospel purpose for your heart and your life and Mark placing uh, the, the, the move of God's kingdom from, from Jesus advancing and sending out the 12 uh, up against this gruesome, horrible story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And I'll give you briefly three thoughts, three takeaways about kingdoms, a killer, and the king. First, with regard to kingdoms, in the conflict of worldly kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ will prevail. We may think ourselves somehow exempt uh, from this truth, but we aren't. Every single one of us in our sinfulness and pridefulness sits on a throne of our own making. Ours is not so much a kingdom as it is a thiefdom. It's a stolen throne that we desire to sit on and a, king, a kingdom after which we want to chase and see if we can make it happen. We are not so very different from Herod. We're just wannabe kings and queens who are driven by pridefulness and ego. And history is chock full of kingdoms that have risen and fallen. Kingdoms that have come and gone. Only Jesus' kingdom will continue to advance. Only Christ's kingdom will prevail. And the proof of that is that here we are, some 2,000 years later, having come into a relationship with God through our Savior Jesus Christ. We know that He is alive. He is no longer in the grave. And we continue to live for Him Show me some other human in history who has founded something that continues on to this day. You will not do it. Jesus Christ is superlative because only his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His kingdom is greater than every other kingdom. Have you reconciled your life to that? Listen, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is an offense the gospel causes you to be honest about yourself, about things about you that you don't want to think about. This was precisely Herod's problem. John told him what his problem was, but he didn't want to hear that. So, so often it is the case with you and I that, that the gospel speaks into our life and we, we, we want to refuse it. The gospel still has something to teach every single one of us as we walk with God, that we are not the center of the universe, that we are not the God over our own life, that we won't found a kingdom that will continue on with perpetu without perpetuation. Listen, to the degree that you and I have a little kingdom of our own, you should know this, Christ's kingdom is going to crush it. He will share his glory with no one. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The gospel puts you in a world that is ruled by authority. It's the Lord's authority. Every authority underneath that, civil authority, authority in the church, authority in the home, every other authority in this world is just an extension of his authority. He alone is king. The gospel teaches you that you can't do anything apart from the personal rescue of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible says of the collision between the kingdom of Jesus and all the kingdoms of this world and all of its kings and queens. God says in Isaiah, Behold, my servant, Jesus, will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And here's what happens to the kings. And the kings shall shut their mouths at him. Listen, I know you're no Herod. I know you're not a Herodias. 
I'm thankful that most of you are not a Salome. But nevertheless, it is in you to want to be king over your own kingdom. At the face of Jesus, all the powerful, all the elite, all the great of this life will simply shut their mouths in his presence. Even for the believer, often our response is to rise to our own defense and to want to argue for our own righteousness. That's because the gospel still has work to do in us. It still has some offending to do. It's hard for us to embrace the ongoing message. Listen, I need, I need King Jesus' grace just as much today as I did the day I met him. I need it more so. I know myself better. This leads us uh, to the problem that lies within us, which is the problem of sin. A killer. Every earthly kingdom, political or personal, will be utterly undone. Ironically, though, he was certainly responsible for the death of Herod. Herod is not the killer. Herod's sin was. It killed John. It killed a lot of other people, and it would also kill Herod. When given the opportunity to repent, Herod thought better. He failed to realize that sin unchecked always leads to greater sin. Herod thought he knew better. And this is also true for you and me. We should be warned from Herod's life of the seductiveness and destructiveness of sin. Sin, unchecked, like if you just run with it, has a way of distorting the desires of your heart. This, I think, is why Jesus rebukes the church in Revelation that they had departed from their first love. We're so tempted toward other things that we can lose our devotion to Jesus. Sin will never lead us in a good direction. When we say that life is hard, it is hard because of sin. But God is good. Sin is not good. Sin always leads to destruction and ultimately to death. And maybe, again, you, you are no Herod or Herodias, but every time you give way to something that you know displeases God, you're stepping into danger and into the way of destruction. I'm afraid we're worn down by a culture who, that no longer takes sin seriously. And so the Bible is shockingly honest with us about this. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. It's a perpetual problem for us. Chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the paycheck for our sin is death. The book of Numbers tells us that we can be sure that our sins will find us out, which is why we implore one another as Christ followers to drag our sins into the light where they become powerless over us. Be honest about who you are and your need for God's grace. Don't be a Herod who thinks that you can just simply keep it close to the vest and control everything because eventually it's going to explode on you because his kingdom is going to crash into yours. Every kingdom will be undone ultimately. So with regard to our own little kingdoms, we will either be undone by our own sin or by heeding the gospel of Christ where we come to surrender, to submission, to acknowledging that he alone is God, that I can do no, nothing apart from him, that I need him as the apostles and so many before us have done. As the theologian and pastor John Owen of the 1600s famously said, be killing sin or sin 
will be killing you. So the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 12. I'm not sure these are on the, on the screen. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The hope for us, the good news for us is the inbreaking of the kingdom of Jesus Christ means that we have been set free from being slaves to sin. We no longer have to cooperate. There was a time when that's all that we could do, but in Christ, we have an option now. We can surrender ourselves to God and to allow his dominion to continue to reign over us and spread in us. Why? Well, finally, because there is a king. There is only one king of kings and Lord of lords, and that is Jesus Christ. It's a bit of an irony that Herod, though he wasn't even really a king, went on to be fascinated with Jesus. The scripture says he longed to get into Jesus' presence. It, it never really happens, uh, never that is, until the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is in Jerusalem and Herod Antipas happens to be there, and Pilate, discovering that Jesus was from Galilee and wanting to shirk responsibility, sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. And so finally, at long last, wannabe King Herod gets a, court, a chance to uh, stand in court before Jesus Christ. And so he riddles him with questions, the scripture says. But Jesus hadn't come to placate people. He hadn't come to make people's wishes come true. He's the king. And so he said not a single word to Herod. Not a word demonstrating that his authority was greater. In the end, having been a fool already, Herod sealed his fate by mocking Jesus and sending him back to Pilate to his ultimate death. But we know that the crucifixion was not the end. It was just the ultimate collision between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, between uh, uh, the kingdom of uh, Jesus and the kingdom of self. It was this clash where we see, like in, death, uh, in the death of John, that God is sovereign. God is not shocked when the advance of the kingdom meets opposition. In actuality, he's in complete control. Just as Jesus was uh, willingly laying down his life, he said this, no man takes my life from me. No one took John's life without God's permission. There is nothing in this hard, sin-stained life that comes into your uh, experience that your Father God, who loves you with an infinite love, didn't sign off on first. And that might scare you for a moment, but you should remember that He is in control, not your circumstances, not you. And Romans 8.28 says He can take that and He could turn it to good for those who love Him and who are called according to his purpose. You lie, your life may well be hard, but God is sovereign and good, and he has a purpose for your life. It's a purpose about advancing his kingdom and spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's the last thing that we see in this passage, the unstoppable plan of redemption and restoration. It's amazing then in the face of a good man's death, the kingdom of God is now exploding at the very same moment because God's kingdom will come and his will will be done 
And whenever you give yourself to the work of God's kingdom, no matter how futile it seems to you, no matter what difficulty you may go through, you can be sure of this, that you have believed in something that is hopeful and true and sure, and it will be successful. No sooner is John in the ground than Mark jumps back to the end of the first story in his sandwich, and he simply reports, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. Eleven of these men are going to go on in the book of Acts, and it's going to be said of them, these are the ones who have turned the world upside down. This is our lineage. This is what we have been called to. We're not living in a day when God desires to do less. He wants to do more. He wants to abound in grace, but he's counting on us to be the kinds of people that square off with this truth that life is hard, but we become citizens of a kingdom that this world is not worthy of, and we will live for our King Jesus and be used of him. What's the story calling us to? To be aware of the war. To not walk with our eyes closed. To be aware of the collision. Where does this take place? This war between the kingdom of God and, and the kingdom of this world. Kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. Well, it, it takes place in your heart. That's the battleground. Herod's problems were not that he drank too much. Herod's problems weren't, weren't just that he was prideful and arrogant. It, it, it wasn't something sexually motivated in him. Herod's problems were that his, his heart was darkened. He needed a new heart. He needed to learn from John's story that there's a call to downward mobility. Jesus, uh, John would say this, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. You want to get off the throne of your own life? You want to surrender your kingdom to Jesus for his purposes before he crushes it? Then this is your motto. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. It's a call to humility and seriousness and war. It's a call to repentance and faith and allegiance to King Jesus and to no one else. By grace, may we be good soldiers. May we find greater joy in the kingdom of God coming into this world than anything that any other kingdom could ever offer us. Why? Because life is hard, but it is much, much harder in this life and in the next for the person who never tastes and sees that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. In, the, in light of the recognition that you would have been well within your sovereign right within your justice and your holiness, simply to have wiped your hands of this world you made. A world full of rebellion and sinfulness and brokenness. And yet, you chose to come. You came to redeem. You came to extend, as John did, the offer of repentance from sin, forgiveness based upon the merit of Christ and His cross, and the hope of new life. For those who receive, for those who believe, you have given the right to become children of God. 
We have embarked upon eternal life in your kingdom. It is now. It is present. It is not something future. We are here and we're asking you, Lord, as Jesus taught us to pray, that, you would, uh, that your kingdom would come on earth even as it is in heaven. So we surrender the throne of our lives. We lay down our plans for prospering our own little K kingdom. We implore you not to crush us, but that you would teach us how to live as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. And for those who reject, like Herod, there is a crushing coming. There is a horrific eye-opening when they will recognize that you alone are God that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, and that all of creation will be left simply to shut our mouths at the wonder and majesty of who you are. Help us, Lord, to learn to walk in the footsteps of John, repeating to ourselves that refrain over and over, Jesus must increase in me and I must decrease. We pray that for your glory and for our eternal joy. In Christ's name, amen.